Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting. And also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 157, My Largest Wild Turkeys. And I am your host and the guy who has finally made some definite plans for his first out-of-state turkey hunting trip for the spring of 2018. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a second, but right now we are 140 days, 10 hours, 52 minutes, and 6 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. So yesterday, the Turkey Hunter podcast intern Cameron and I finally firmed up our plans for hunting North Carolina in 2018. And it turns out that I'm probably a pretty bad influence on the Turkey Hunter podcast intern, Cameron. (laughs) Because he has planned in late April to take off about seven or eight days and go to North Dakota and South Dakota. So I put him on... The trip there that I went on about four or five years ago with the guys, and he was all fired up about that. So he's booked his trip to go to North Dakota and South Dakota, which is very exciting, and I'm kind of tempted to go with him because it was an awesome trip. But I want to go to North Carolina mere days before he leaves to go to North Dakota and South Dakota. So it looks like I've talked him into taking two more days off of work right around the weekend before he takes off to leave for seven or eight days in North Dakota and South Dakota. So with a little bit of arm twisting, and it didn't take much, it really didn't take much, he's on board, we've got our plan set, and we're ready to go. I can already see us carrying turkeys out of the woods on that trip, so I'm excited about that. And I've made the conscious decision this year to spend more time in North Carolina, Georgia, and Mississippi this coming spring to try to mark those three states off of my list because I've made the bad mistake over the past several years of not hunting those three states enough. They are a short drive away. And I still need to get those marked off my list for my Super Slam. So I've got some arrangements made to hunt a place or two in Mississippi. 
and I plan on hitting some of the public land or national forest land in North Carolina and Georgia pretty much every weekend during those states' turkey seasons. They are a priority much more than killing another turkey in Alabama. Although, I'll be doing some hunting in Alabama during the week, of course. Winter weather has just finally arrived, and I'm getting fired up about spring. So, in researching show topics recently, I came across an article about a gentleman who killed a turkey with a two and a half inch spur on one leg. And the article includes a photo of the spur on that leg. And needless to say, it's quite impressive. It is huge. The picture got me to thinking about some of the biggest turkeys that I've killed over the years. Now, even though I've killed almost 100 turkeys in my career, I have never killed a turkey with spurs over an inch and three-eighths long. But I have several of them that measure that. Once I started getting really serious about turkey hunting and I actually completed my first Grand Slam, I got my first turkey from all of the other subspecies mounted. But I have not gotten an eastern wild turkey mounted. And I've told myself for the past 12 or 15 years that I was not going to get an eastern wild turkey mounted unless he had at least inch and a half spurs. So why did I make that rule? Well, it just kind of seems like the magic number. Because up to that point in time, I'd never killed an eastern wild turkey with an inch and a half spurs. And since that time, over the past 12 or 15 years, I still have not killed an eastern wild turkey with inch and a half spurs. So I still don't have an eastern wild turkey mounted. I have a Goulds, Merriam's, Osceola, and a Rio mounted, but no Eastern. And I've killed way more Easterns than I have any of the other subspecies. Now, I have almost all of my turkey beards and spurs on display in my basement office area. So I get to see them and relive some of those stories almost daily. And I do pay attention to and look at those spurs and beards when I am in my basement office, which is almost daily. So I get a constant reminder of a lot of my turkey hunts. Because on each one of my beards, I melt wax into the end of a shotgun shell. And before the wax hardens, I put the beard of the turkey in that wax. I let the wax harden and it holds the turkey beard inside the end of that shotgun shell. At that point, I take a sharpie and I write a little note about each turkey and the date that I killed that turkey on the metal part of the shotgun shell. So I've got a constant reminder. I know where each of those beards and each one of those sets of spurs came from. So I do get to relive those stories quite often. And even though I have yet to kill that inch and a half spurred eastern wild turkey, I do not think any less of any of the birds that I've taken. As much as we all like to match wits and win against an old tom, many times when we set up to hunt a turkey, we don't know how big or how old that turkey is. Now, sometimes we've done our scouting and we have trail cameras out 
And we do know, or at least have an idea, of how big a bird in that area actually is. And like I said, each and every bird that we harvest is special and something to be proud of. But there is something just a tiny bit sweeter when we walk up to a downed bird and see those long spurs and know that we beat an old, wary gobbler at his own game. So today at Story Day, I'm going to share with you guys the stories of some of the largest wild turkeys that I've ever killed. And I'm not doing this to brag because I would just about bet most of you men and women out there listening to this show have killed turkeys larger than I've killed. So I'm not bragging about anything. But what I want to do is mainly just share the stories with you because I feel like there's something that we can learn from each and every story that we hear about turkey hunting. And so I'm going to share the stories and my one or two takeaways from each of these hunts. So let's jump in and get on with this thing. First up, my first gobbler. So my first gobbler was... A monster and in hindsight I probably should have gotten him mounted because he had over an 11 inch beard and inch and a quarter spurs at the time that I killed this turkey I was 22 years old and really had only turkey hunted maybe five or six times and so I went down to my hunting camp with my buddy Chip and my buddy George And we spent the weekend down there. And if I recall correctly, there was not much gobbling going on. I do remember it was late season. In fact, it was the last weekend of turkey season. So it would have been the end of April. Now, even though there wasn't much gobbling going on that weekend, we were able to strike a bird late morning. And I want to say it was around 10 o'clock in the morning that we got this bird to gobble. So we slipped into the area that the bird was gobbling from, and my buddy Chip was really the only one of us who knew how to actually call a turkey in. So Chip sets up in the caller's position, which is about 15 or 20 yards behind me and George, and George and I are on a couple of trees about five yards apart, facing where this turkey's coming from. So Chip begins to call, the turkey's responding, and that was the first time that I ever really heard a turkey spit and drum, and little did I know before that time that that would become one of my favorite sounds in the whole world. It still to this day mesmerizes me. I don't know what it is about it, but there's just something about that sound that's just mesmerizing to me. So he's calling, the turkey's gobbling, spitting and drumming off in the distance, And the turkey's probably 70 yards away, 75 yards away, something like that from me and George. So probably closer to 80, 85 yards away from Chip. And we're in the edge of the woods. This turkey is in a fresh cutover. So George and I are sitting there and we've got our focus on the direction this turkey's coming from. And all of a sudden, we hear this ruckus behind us. And we turn around and look and Chip is up running through the woods away from us. I looked at George. George looked at me. Neither one of us knew what in the world he was doing. So 
we still just sat there because the turkey is gobbling. And about 30 or 45 seconds later, Chip walks back, sits down against the tree that he was sitting against before, and starts calling again. And the turkey is still gobbling. And he's approaching. He's getting closer and closer. I can still see that turkey's head coming through that cutover, looking for the hen that he thought was where Chip was calling from. And he would take about five or six steps, and he'd go down into strut, and he'd come back up, stick his head up real quick, and look around, look around, look around. And he'd take a few more steps, and he'd drop down into strut, and he'd come back up, and he'd look around. And he stepped behind a tree between me and him, and I got the gun on the tree. He stepped out to the right side of that tree, and I shot and killed him. Now, it doesn't sound like the most exciting hunt in the world, because... The turkey came in. We actually did have to reposition one time to get into a spot where the turkey wanted to be, where he was comfortable coming in to that hen that he heard calling him. But the hunt did not last for hours and hours. It did not involve us repositioning three or four or five times like sometimes we have to do on these big older turkeys. But it was my first wild turkey. And He was a monster wild turkey at that. So after I shot, and at that time I didn't know any better, I ran up to the turkey and stood on his head because that's what I was always told to do. That's what was done in every single turkey hunting video that I'd ever watched. By the way, thank you, Will Primos, for the Truth series of turkey hunting videos. And when Chip and George got there to help me celebrate, I looked at Chip and I said, what? were you doing? Why were you running around in the woods? And he said, while I was calling, I heard some walking in the leaves and I look over very slowly and I see a hen walking towards that turkey. And if that hen had gotten to the gobbler, our hunt would have been over. She would have taken him off in the other direction and we never would have killed him. So I got up and ran in the direction of that hen to run her back where she came from. So that's what I was doing. So that hunt taught me a couple of things. Actually, that hunt taught me quite a few things. But one of my takeaways from that hunt was that we have to keep our eyes and ears open, not just for the turkey that we're hunting, but for other turkeys that can influence the outcome of our hunt. And if we get the opportunity to, Sometimes jumping up and running at those turkeys to scare them off is the right thing to do. And it worked and it paid dividends in this case for us. My other takeaway from that hunt, remember I was a new turkey hunter at the time, but I got a good wake up call to the fact that we don't have to. And most of the time we don't harvest a wild turkey right after fly down that many mornings A mid-morning hunt is more productive than an early morning hunt. The gobbling may not be as frequent as it can be when a turkey's gobbling on the roost, trying to bring those hens to his location, but, but I'll take a turkey that I killed that gobbled 20 times or even one time over a wild turkey that I did not kill that gobbled 100 times. Don't get me wrong, I love to hear him gobble, but I can't eat those gobbles. So that's the story of my first wild turkey gobbler and the two takeaways from that hunt. 
Next up is the birthday turkey. Now the birthday turkey was actually killed on my brother's birthday. And there's a couple of reasons that this turkey sticks out to me. Because first of all, it was the first one spurred turkey that I'd ever killed. And he had an inch and three eighths spur on one leg. On the other leg was nothing, not even a bump where a spur once was or even tried to grow. The other reason that that hunt sticks out to me is because I did kill him on my brother's birthday. And that hunt and that turkey was actually the reason why I was an hour and a half late for lunch at my mother's house to celebrate my brother's birthday. So that particular morning, my buddy Todd and I struck out from the hunting camp in southwest Alabama. And we knew that we needed to leave there by about 9.30 that morning in order for me to be able to make it back to Birmingham in time for lunch at my parents' house to celebrate my brother's birthday. Now, why he was ever born during turkey season, I'll never know. But that's not the point of the story. (laughs) So, that morning, Todd and I actually hunted together early morning. And if I recall correctly, there was little to no gobbling going on on the roost. So, even though we hunted together early, and we did that a lot in our early or formative years of turkey hunting, we would hunt together early in the morning, and then if nothing was going on later in the morning, we would actually split up and go do some blind calling in areas where we knew turkeys were. So I sent Todd over to an area, and I thought that Todd stood the much better chance of getting into turkeys than I did. And I went over into a different area about a half mile away from him. And I will never forget this, because when I sat down that morning to start my blind calling, I sat up against a tree on the edge of a food plot, and by the way, for you new-er hunters out there, please don't set up right on the edge of a food plot. If you're going to hunt a field or a food plot, get back into the woods 10 or 15 yards. That way you've got some cover around you. But anyway, I sat down on the edge of this food plot, I took out my pot and peg call that I had at the time, and I went, cluck! And if you could ever possibly get cut off making a single cluck, this turkey just about did it. No sooner had that peg come almost off of the pot call to complete that cluck than a turkey responded. Well, that immediately got my attention, of course. And that turkey that gobbled, I'd say, was probably about 100 yards from me. But there was a ditch, a rather large ditch, between me and that turkey. And I know that an eastern wild turkey is not going to want to cross a ditch. So I need to get on the other side of this ditch from where I am. So I get up and I start walking in that direction. I get to the other side of the ditch and I sit down in an area where I think I can call that turkey in. And it's actually on the edge of the woods road that runs through that area. And I begin to call. A second turkey gobbles. This one further away. This turkey was probably 300 yards away. And he gobbled again. And he gobbled again. And he's getting closer. And he's getting closer. Well, I am not moving because 
I know there's a turkey within 60 or 70 yards of me. He gobbled one time. And I'm pretty sure it's not the same turkey. So at this point in time, I'm not getting up to go to that gobbling turkey to close the distance because there's a chance that this first turkey that gobbled is coming in. And he may come in silently because he may not be the dominant bird in the area. So I wait and I wait and I call. The other turkey gobbles. The closer turkey never gobbled again. But what happened was the farther turkey came in to about 150 yards and got hung up. Because between me and that turkey was another smaller ditch that the turkey probably walked across multiple times per day. But he wasn't in the mood to at that point in time. So he was hung up. And after a period of time, when I realized the quiet turkey was not coming in, or maybe even the quiet turkey had seen me and spooked, I decided that I needed to get up and get moved around on the gobbling turkey. So I did just that. I got up, I repositioned, I got within about 100 yards of him, and I sat down and I started calling. And he gobbled. After a little while, he gobbled again and he was a little bit closer. After about 20 minutes... I see him walking down the woods road that runs into a swampy area on our property. And he's coming my direction. So I sit and I wait. And he keeps coming. He gets closer and closer. He gets to be about 30 yards from me. And I shot and killed him. Now this turkey was probably the biggest turkey I'd killed at the time. And I was really excited, obviously, because I'd killed a turkey. And at that point in my turkey hunting career... I had not killed all that many. So any turkey that I killed, I was extremely proud of, and especially any turkey I called in myself. But to kill a turkey that has inch and three-eighths spurs, or I should say an inch and three-eighths spur, was quite an accomplishment in my book. And this turkey was even more special and more unique because he did have just one spur. So after I shot the turkey, I Picked him up, took him back to the truck. Todd was at the truck because we were supposed to have left an hour earlier. So Todd had been at the truck for an hour waiting on me. But he had a good idea of what I was doing because I was late. So we checked the turkey out. I shared the story with him about the hunt and then went back to camp, packed up and hauled ourselves back to Birmingham in a hurry so that I wasn't too terribly late for the party. Now, a couple of takeaways by me from this story is, first of all, how this turkey just completely shut up the other turkey that had gobbled. The other turkey was very close to me and could have easily gotten to that hen that he heard calling well before the dominant turkey did. But he was not interested. When he heard that other turkey gobble, he was through. He was done for. The second takeaway from that hunt is that we really have to try to be cognizant of what is between us and the turkey that we're trying to call in to us. There was no way that the first turkey was going to come across that big ditch to get to me or that the second turkey was coming across the little ditch to get to me. 
So we've got to take those opportunities to reposition when we get them and get ourselves in a better position to take the turkey. We've got to try to remember where those obstacles are so that we can get around them or at least to the edge of them to make it easier for that turkey to come to us or for the turkey to want to come to us. My other smaller takeaway from all that is if you have family that has a birthday during turkey season, dump them. Man, it's just not worth it. It is not worth it. No, I'm just kidding. Seriously. (laughs) So the third hunt that I want to share with you guys today is a bird that I like to call Chief Osceola. Now, if you listen to this show a lot, you know that I don't like to name turkeys when I'm hunting them because I feel like it humanizes those turkeys. But I try to give each and every one of them that I kill a name because it helps me to remember the story. So, as you may have already guessed, Chief Osceola was an Osceola turkey. And yes, I was pretty sure that that little announcement there did not leave you hanging on the edge of your seat, waiting for me to tell you that Chief Osceola was an Osceola wild turkey. But he's Chief Osceola because on this particular piece of property, he was the chief. He was the man. All the other male turkeys in the area knew it. And to guess, I'm going to guess it probably all the other turkeys in the area learned it the hard way. So this trip was actually my third trip to Florida for Osceola turkeys. And on this trip, I think there were six of us. Three or four of us had already gotten our Osceola turkey to complete our slam. But there were two or three of us, I think there were two of us, that had not gotten an Osceola yet. So we all loaded up and went to Florida for those two people to get an opportunity to hunt and kill an Osceola turkey. And to give ourselves the opportunity to kill another one. So in two and a half days of hunting, I was the only person in our group who had not killed a turkey. And in typical fashion with this group of guys that I hunt with, the focus was on me. Everyone in the group was focused on how they could help me get a turkey, on what information they could share with me to help me take an Osceola turkey. Because we're not that way. We want everyone in our group to be successful, and I'm sure Any of you guys who hunt with a group out there are the same way. The trip is only a partial success if someone comes back and has not killed a turkey. So the focus that morning was on me and my buddy John from Virginia says to me at dinner the night before, I know how to get you a turkey. I know what this turkey over in this particular area is doing. He roosted this afternoon in the same spot that he roosted the night before. This morning, I watched him across the pasture. I know where he's roosted. I know where he's going to fly down. I know what he's going to do after he flies down. You need to go with me in the morning and let me take you in there. And I'm telling you, you can kill this turkey. There was not much uncertainty in John's voice when he was telling me this. And because of that, I had to go with it. I couldn't question him. So the next morning, John is guiding me on this turkey hunt. So we're walking into this area and we're walking on the low side of a levee. 
And he said the turkey was roosted on the other side of the levee. So the levee actually afforded us a little bit of cover in being able to approach this turkey. But it was still pretty dark. So we felt pretty comfortable getting into the area that the turkey was going to fly down into. Or at least John felt like the turkey was going to fly into. And John said, let's keep walking down this levee until we get to the end of this little head of woods. He said that these two large pastures come together at this head of woods. And that head of woods was actually a little bit of a pinch point. So most turkeys walking from one field to the other would walk through that gap in the trees or that pinch point. Again, John has not led me to question anything that he's told me. He is very confident in what it's going to take to kill this turkey. So we get into that little neck of woods, that head of woods that was the pinch point, and we sit down. No sooner had we sat down than the turkey gobbles back behind us. And he said, great, he's exactly where I left him last night. And John said, if he does the same thing that he did yesterday, he's going to fly down in this field behind us to our right. He's going to walk through this pinch point out into this larger pasture, and that's where you're going to kill him. So as dawn continues to crack, the turkey's gobbling and gobbling and gobbling, and we hear some hens off in the distance behind us with that gobbler. And at that point, we knew that there was no reason for us to call that we were going to be competing with hens, and that we were going to lose that battle. That if we called, that most likely when the hens flew down in the field behind us, they were going to go in the other direction instead of doing what they'd done the day before. So we sat there quietly. A couple of hens flew down in the field behind us and to our right, near the pinch point. And it was not very long after that Chief Osceola flew down. Well, Chief Osceola almost lands on top of one of the hens, but as soon as his feet hit the ground, the hen that he landed nearest to sat down in breeding position, and he climbed up on her back and bred her. When they finished, she took off running, and she ran through the pinch point out into the pasture in front of us. While Chief Osceola climbs on the back of the second hen and breeds her. When they finished, she got up, shook a little bit, and she took off through the pinch point towards the first hen. Well, Chief Osceola was not far behind him. And he walked through the pinch point, walked into the pasture, directly towards the hens that he had just bred, and that's where he met his demise. Now, despite a good bit of gobbling on the roost, There was not much gobbling on the ground. It was still very dark when Chief Osceola took a load of number six shot. But that hunt was a very memorable hunt for several different reasons. First of all, where we set up was probably 50 or 60 yards from where Chief Osceola was roosted. And we got to hear him drum and gobble a bunch on the roost. We got to watch him breed two hens within about 30 yards of us. And when we got up to Chief Osceola, we then understood why he was the chief in that area. With inch and three-eighth spurs and a big, thick, heavy beard, I can't remember if we weighed him or not, 
but he was a stud and that was his territory. But my takeaways from that hunt were this. Wild turkeys sometimes get into habits. If I can catch a turkey doing the same thing two days in a row and he's roosted the third morning in the same spot he was the first two mornings, there's a really, really good chance that that turkey is going home with me. Now, we didn't get the opportunity to hunt that bird three mornings in a row, but John felt comfortable knowing that that turkey was going to do on day two what he did on day one that John got to observe him doing. I was confident in John's confidence of where we needed to go, when we needed to be there, and what we needed to do when we got there. And it paid off. My other takeaway from that is that sometimes we can really mess up a hunt by calling. Don't get me wrong, I love to call turkeys in. But remember what I told you earlier? I love the taste of wild turkey. And if I have to keep my calls in my vest in order to squeeze the trigger and fill a tag, you better believe that I'm keeping my calls in my vest. That morning, there was no reason for us to call. We were out hinned. The hens were roosted in the same area with him. The hens had been with him in the afternoon, and he knew the hens were going to be with him in the morning. He was going to fly down where they flew down. If we'd called, it was not going to help the situation at all. Another takeaway from that hunt is that these pinch points, and it's a term that's become so popular in hunting whitetails, but these pinch points are also great setup locations to hunt wild turkeys. They are just natural game corridors. Coyotes use them. Bobcats use them. Deer use them. Hogs use them. And of course, wild turkeys use them as well. So look for areas like that in your hunting area and see if that doesn't pay off for you. All right, so my fourth story for you guys today is a bird that I really haven't even named, but I'm just going to say he was almost a mounter. Almost a mounter is just that. That is actually the eastern wild turkey that I have come the closest to taking to the taxidermist. In fact, that eastern wild turkey sat in my chest freezer for about seven years before I decided to take him out this past year and cut off his legs and cut off his beard and dispose of the rest of him. So the story behind the turkey that was almost a mounter is not some long drawn out tale. In fact, that hunt was pretty much a flash hunt. You see, I knew where that turkey was because my buddy Brian and I hunted him a couple of days before. And from where we set up, I could actually see the turkey on the next ridge over. He was about 125 or 150 yards from us. And because of the hills and the hollows in that area, I didn't know it at the time. But he was standing in this little opening in the pine trees. And every time we would call, he would gobble and he would go down into strut and pirouette. And I caught just a little bit of that movement of him pirouetting through the shadows in the woods, and in that opening, the next ridge over. And I slipped my binoculars up, looked in his direction, spotted him, and I told Brian, 
we were done for, that we were not going to kill that turkey. And he said, how do you know? And I said, because I'm looking at him right now at about 125 yards. And he's standing there watching us. Now, I'm sure he does not know at that time that we're human beings and that we're the ones making those turkey sounds. But what I do know that he knows is that he does not see a hen over there on the hillside where he hears that calling coming from. And we all know that turkeys have an exceptional ability to pinpoint where a sound is coming from. So after I told Brian that we stood no chance of killing that turkey, that I was watching the turkey, he said, are you sure? And I said, yes, let's just leave. So we crawled out of the area that day. And a couple of days later, I came back into that area to check to see if he was in the area and was gobbling. And he was. When I blew on the crow call that morning and he responded, I immediately went to the area that Brian and I sat down. And I stood against a tree about five or ten feet away from where Brian and I sat and called a couple of mornings before. And I blew the crow call again. And the turkey was just down the road from me, about 125 yards away. I'm at the top of a hill. And he's down the road, down in the bottom, below me. Two days ago, he was on the opposite hill. But this morning, he was in the bottom. So I sat down where I was. And I was actually in a pretty good spot because I could see about 30 yards down the road before the hill dropped off enough to where I could not see any further. And I made one soft little three or four or five note yelp. Just a little And he responded. So at that point in time, I knew he knew where I was. I knew where he was. I had a pretty good feeling that if he was coming... I knew how he was going to get to me. He was going to continue walking up the road to me. So I sat there against the tree with a gun on my knee, pointed in that direction. And about four or five minutes later, his head popped up over the edge of the hill. And he's looking around for the hen. And then it dropped back down and I couldn't see him anymore. But what happened when he dropped his head back down is I moved my gun over in that direction where I last saw him. And sure enough, he popped his head back up again and I rolled him. And when I say I rolled him, I literally rolled him down the hill while he's flopping. And he pulled out probably 30% of the feathers in his saddle, that area that runs from the back of his neck to his fan. There were feathers strewn all over the road, but he was down. He was not going anywhere. So after I got to him, I let him finish flopping and I took my foot and I moved his wings out of the way. And then I saw the spurs inch and three-eighths spurs on what was obviously a very old turkey. So my takeaways from that hunt were this. Even though we may be hunting an older, wiser turkey, and that turkey may give us the slip some days, we may hunt that turkey for four straight weeks, there's going to be a day when he's going to make a mistake. First of all, we've got to be in the woods when that day rolls around. But secondly, we need to be in a position to give ourselves the opportunity to harvest that older, wiser turkey when we get the chance. Not all hunts on an old, wise bird are long, drawn-out, difficult hunts. If we can catch him on the right day, it can be a flash hunt to where you are literally through hunting in five to ten minutes. With the tag field 
and fresh turkey to go in the freezer. So my second takeaway is this. If we have called to a turkey and then we get a visual on that turkey, we do not need to call again. Let that turkey either come on into us or hold his ground. But when we have a visual on a turkey and we make a call to that turkey, that turkey can pinpoint exactly where we are. And if we don't have decoys out or the decoys are not where he can see them and he cannot see a hen, there's a really good chance that turkey's going to hang up. Again, nature tells that Tom that he is to get into an area where he can display and show off for the hens so that they can see how handsome he is. And the hens are then supposed to come to him. So a lot of times we'll lock that turkey up and we'll hang that turkey up out of gun range because the turkey can see where the calling is coming from and he cannot see a hen. So if we get a visual on a bird that we've already called to, do not call anymore. It's time to stop calling. So I hope that you guys enjoyed those stories and got something from my takeaways in those stories. I enjoyed every one of those hunts, as I'm sure you guys have enjoyed every hunt that you've ever killed a bird on. And I certainly enjoy sharing those stories anytime that I get the opportunity to. So that's it. That's all for today. But if you guys would do me one favor before I cut you loose this week, send me a picture on Facebook or Twitter or by email to andy at iamturkeyhunting.com of the set of longest spurs from any turkey that you've harvested. That's what I want to see. I want to see long, sharp spurs from some of your birds. Send them on to me. I cannot wait to see them. So that's my one favor for the week, and that's it. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.